Paul Kincaid is an expert on leadership. He spends his life helping people who run the business and run them better. So he works across industry with leaders who have responsibility for wide remits and varying numbers of people. So from small companies all the way up to corporate level and big corporates. He himself has been responsible for multi, multi-million pound budgets, which has pushed up into the billions as well, especially as a colonel in the armed forces. Paul was an army commando, but reached the rank of lieutenant colonel at a ridiculously young age compared to most. He ended his military service as the army's head of training development. The army has some very large and very expensive equipment, but more than most industries, it's people that really matter. Because at the end of the day, they've got to be prepared for high pressure, high danger situations. And that takes strong leadership. So Paul, you must have been through some fairly hairy experiences. I wondered if there was a particular moment you've been through where leadership was paramount in managing, well, let's say a challenging situation. You know, there are several throughout the career. I think the first one that springs to mind was the first one, which was a vehicle I was traveling in. I was commanding a number of vehicles that day and the vehicle I was traveling in experienced a mine strike. So we ran over a mine and and the mine exploded, fatally wounding the, the driver. And in that instance, obviously, you've got that initial human reaction of, crikey, what's just happened? And then, you know, you've got to immediately click into the command function, the leadership function, where I needed to understand the situation first, then control the situation, give direction to the soldiers around me as to what to do. So there was some dealing with the casualty, including myself, ensure that the remainder of the soldiers knew what to do because it was the first time any of us had been involved in a mine strike. So it was was quite a surprise. Maintain security because often, you know, if there's a mine, then there's something else there as well. And it could be the start of an ambush. So we had to, you know, protect the area around us. But then, of course, it's the classic crisis leadership event that kicked in, which is communicate the details of the crisis up the chain of command, if there is a chain of command there waiting, get more assets in to help. And then maintain that open line of communication to everyone around me, my boss, the people who are looking at me for direction and keep a calm head. So I think that's the first one, really, where, you know, I was brand new. I was not not long after out of Sandhurst uh, and that incident occurred. And it was at that, you know, it's at that point the training kicked in. You hear that all the time, don't you, with ex-military and current military people. But it's true. The training was was fantastic and it allowed me to rely on the experiences that I gained through training. That's really interesting. As you're saying it, I was thinking, God, that does that really rely on the training and how important training is? And we're definitely going to come into that later. But it seems like in that experience, you've probably explained sort of what it is that you must do because you've talked about, well, you started off with crikey. I imagine that may not have been the reaction you had exactly at the time, but, but you've got about understanding the situation, controlling it, giving some directions, instructing getting some security in place and the crisis management and the communication. That sounds like that's the kind of underpinning values probably for most leadership scenarios. Probably missed one out as well, actually, which would be accept it. You know, if, if you're in crisis or for, if there's a drama going on, okay, you accept that it's going on rather than make a drama out of a crisis. We are in crisis. Something bad has just happened or is happening. Accept it. And then you immediately start to calm down, which means you can think more clearly, of course. It's interesting, you listen to this and you know, we, our focus is on how to develop in business 
And there could be, and especially kind of given that, because that is a partic- particular situation which really isn't going to happen to most of us unless we're in the armed forces. Of some, <laughs> Quite, you know, we, I sincerely hope not. We hope, you know, unless you're in, you know, obviously there are some pressurised parts of the world. But, you know, in sunny old Bournemouth, then, um, you know, we're pretty safe for the majority of that. So I, I think, you know, a lot of us have got the impression that we think we might know what army leadership is about. And for most, that probably involves a lot of shouting. So we could be excused for wondering, you know, is your approach really relevant for the office place? I mean, we, we may want to shout at people in the office uh, all the time, but it's not necessarily always appropriate just after the hobnobs have been passed around in the meeting room. So uh, I have a hobnob. <laughs> well, you can't underestimate the power of a hobnob. But that said, most people haven't actually been in the army, and those impressions are often formed by all manner of films or TV or documentaries. So what is the reality of leadership in the army, uh, at least in today's modern army? That's a great question, yeah. You know, TV, film does sensationalise the shouting aspects of the military. And of course, there is a little bit of shouting in the initial training phases because there's a need to sort of wake people up to the fact that you're in a new context now. You know, you've stepped out of civilian life, you're now in the military, and, and people shout in order to get or open up the mind to unquestioning obedience to certain things. And I'll just expand on that, if I may, because, you know, we don't shout in the military in order to get things done. If you're that shouty, noisy person, like a shouty, noisy parent, your kids switch off. You know, and if I'm the leader who's constantly shouting, constantly angry, my team are not going to come to me when they've got problems, when they've got well-being issues, when they've got, you know, a vulnerability or, or an issue that they might wish to discuss. They're going to go to someone else. And that takes away a good portion of my leadership capability and capacity. So I would really shout pretty much three times or three separate occasions in the military, not individual occasions, but generic situations. One, if the situation was noisy and I needed to be heard above it. And I don't think that's unreasonable. Two, if someone was about to hurt themselves, like, you know, I don't know if you've got children, but if your child is about to reach out to the iron or the kettle or hurt themselves or run across the road, you're probably going to shout quite loud, quite urgently, in order to get an immediate obedience. You know, you want that child not to run in the road, so you shout to get that bang, that real quick, immediate response. And it's the same in the military. That's the only reason, you know, you, you hear a lot of the shouting. I mean, some of it... If you're doing bayonet fighting, for example, you've got to get the aggression up. And some of the aggression there is is done by volume around you. And then the third time I would shout in the military, to be perfectly honest, is when I've lost control of myself and I let myself down and shout. And again, if you overlay that into the parent domain, you know, we've probably all shouted at our kids at some point when we shouldn't have done. And then we've beaten ourselves up afterwards, maybe apologised to the kids as well, or, or, or whatever that might be. So the reality of leadership in the army is one of leading with integrity, so doing the right thing all of the time, whether anyone's looking or not, leading by example, encourage critical thinking and lateral thinking, and the ability to really dissect things and think as a group. The worst thing in the world is to be that shouty person because I want to encourage my soldiers and my team around me to be able to think and eventually overtake me and come and take on my job. You know, that should really be the role of any leader is to develop anyone underneath them to such a level that they could probably do your job as well. And it's that sort of relentless pursuit of excellence, if you like, but without losing sight of the um, compassion for our people. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was interested in that whole idea about trying to bring somebody up to replace you. I guess that, that makes me wonder about the difference between leadership and management. That you know, A lot of people manage teams and they manage 
businesses manage whole strategies, in fact. But how would you define leadership as being distinct from all of that other stuff that's going on around you? Well, I think it's quite simple, really. Leadership is, is about people and it's about growth of those people and trying to get the best from them. You know, there's a slightly cliche term. You, people manage things. Leaders manage people. And yeah, it is a bit tired. It's a bit cliche, but I think it's quite accurate. Uh, and we need to understand what gets the best of people. The question that quite often follows is, is what's the difference between leadership and management? And for me, and this is, this is a very simplistic definition, but it, but it seems to work for me and, and work in most situations that I've come across, is that managers work within constraints, policies, guidance, you know, systems, processes, all that kind of stuff. And leaders look for and exploit freedoms and opportunities. And that might be the freedom to allow someone to take on more responsibility than they're used to, to see how they manage with that. Or the freedom to, you know, just just push things a little bit and see how, how people manage to step up, how they manage to problem solve, go out onto team building exercises uh, and, and leadership days and away days and see how people cope in situations that aren't the norm. So would you say that in a way management then therefore is about creating the structure and creating the process within which people have to operate and then leadership is about trying to extract the best, kind of using the, the term best quite loosely, but the best that you can from people within the parameters of the structure that you've created as a manager? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and that sort of plays to the fact that n not all managers can lead, but all leaders must be able to manage. Mm. You know, in order to lead, you've got to understand the systems, processes, all the underpinning must-haves that are critically important. You know, I don't want to come across that managers are somehow less than leaders. They are absolutely critically important, but not all managers can lead. And I think that's a, that's a big distinction that we have to acknowledge. So managers, in a way, are in a good position where they can underpin the efficiency of the process which has been put into place, but they can't necessarily change that themselves. And that's where the leadership comes in. And especially if you're in a responsible position within the company, then you need to be able to step up one a little bit beyond what a manager would necessarily be expected to do to be able to evoke the change and, and make those changes happen to improve the things that the managers are trying to process themselves. Yeah, exactly that. You know, a leader needs to be able to understand their team so well that in a situational approach to leadership, the if individual A in policy should be doing a certain job, but individual B in, in times of crisis is actually better at it. Well, let's bend the rules a little bit and get person B doing it because they're going to be more effective, more efficient do it better person a can then learn from them and sit and then therefore be developed so it's about really identifying the best people for the job as well and not necessarily being weighed down by policy now of course we have to operate within policy rules and guidance um, and i'm not suggesting we break the law or do anything untoward but leaders will be able to identify when individuals should be able to step up into certain situations whereby policy and systems perhaps suggest that they shouldn't yeah, that's oh, that suitability is a really interesting question. I was thinking about that earlier on, and I think maybe talk about it, you talked about high performance. Now, I, I follow a bit of cricket, and I think it's really interesting to see when people are pushed into the role of being the captain, uh, but it doesn't suit them necessarily. So cricket captains have got to be able to strategize through the game. It's not like football. It's not sort of, you know, you're not just running around at the front and looking good. It's about actually having to take decisions and make strategic changes throughout the whole course of the game. So often someone who's an amazing player, they get promoted to do the job because the selectors feel 
it's his or her turn and they've earned that moment especially if you're an all-rounder so for the people who who know anything about cricket names like Ian Botham the soon-to-be knighted Ian Botham in fact and Freddie Flintoff spring to mind fantastic players just some of the best people of their generation but actually when it came to captaining the team they, they couldn't really do it and they didn't last very long and they were replaced quickly and in a way everyone had a, an instinct that that was going to be what happened, that they were great people, they were good group personalities, but ultimately they were part of the team. They weren't necessarily leaders of the team. And so that pressure hampered their natural talents. And they, they didn't perform very well either. They didn't lead very well. And then along came, after Ian Botham, uh, Mike Brearley. Now, he wasn't the greatest player. He wasn't the greatest batsman. But he was well, He was actually once described as having a degree in people. And he was a great tactician. And he then enabled and facilitated the role where Ian Botham and Bob Willis had an amazing Headingley match in the Ashes a long time ago. So anyway, that that is just an example of where you can see people with great talent being put into the wrong role. And I just wonder, how do you go about trying to size up who is the right person to put into that leadership position? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great example. And you see it everywhere. People promote it either through longevity or technical capability rather than their ability with people and their ability to lead. So I, I think, you know, you've got to start with the end in mind and, and look for people who show that human ability to lead and strategize and whatever you're looking for in a leader. But this is the real value of things. Lots of people poo-poo at those sort of away days, those team-building days. Just look at people when you're out on a social environment, you know, when you're out on the Christmas function or you're having a coffee break. Those people who naturally engage with others and get the best out of them. So just because you're the best accountant doesn't mean you're going to be the best chief accountant. You might not have any leadership capability at all. And then another way of identifying talent to lead is give people hypothetical situations or give them real problems to deal with, of course, but within a a safe environment. But, you know, if we step back to the hypothetical, how would you deal with a a particular crisis and then get that individual to respond? Now, of course, that's hypothetical. So you've got to dig a little bit deeper. And the way you do that is to ask the individual what assumptions they've made. You know, when they come up with that solution, that hypothetical solution, what assumptions have you made? in order to come to that solution. And then you immediately get a window into their depth of analysis, assumptions about people, you know, oh, well, I've I've chosen that because Sarah is is really good with people and Bob's the greatest technician and Bob's been here longer, so I would promote Sarah because she's better with people. You know, that sort of very simplistic scenario. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting, trying to work through people's thinking process. I mean, it makes complete sense, but it's not something that we do enough of. I guess the other thing that's interesting is that how do you make sure that people don't feel slighted if they are the person that you know, is, as it were, next in line for that promotion, quote-unquote promotion, which they think they deserve, like you say, through longevity, or they're good at their job? Have you seen people managing that process quite well, going, look, I, I really like you know, what you do, and you're really good at doing this, and if you really think about it, you would be crap at doing this job as a leader because it would take you away from doing the things that you enjoy. Have you seen people handling that well? Yeah, I have. Uh, and it's all about that management of expectation, that open, transparent communication. And and something that I refer back to and is central to my belief, which is leading from a position of care. If I'm looking at a team for promotion and I genuinely care about those people, then I'm going to tell the, the person who's been there the longest or the most technically competent that despite them being there the longest and the most technically competent, 
I don't think they've got the skills to step up and lead the team. And by doing that early, it gives them the opportunity, one, to manage their own expectations, two, demonstrate they actually do have that skill set and demonstrate that in good time before the promotion board sits or the decision is made or the interview panel is run or anything like that. So I think that's the thing. And it comes back to a number of key central tenants for me, one of which is transparency. I think there's a book by Kim Scott called Radical Candor. She worked for Google and then and then stepped out and started her book, which has got two central themes, care personally and challenge directly. And within that, if you can be candid in a radical sense, then you would be upfront and honest with your team from the very outset. You know, Anthony, you're a great guy. You run the organization. You run your department really well or, you're, you know, you're a great programmer. But as you know, we need a chief programmer. And at the moment, technically, you're very competent, but I don't think you've got what it takes to, to lead the team. And you can have a two-way conversation about that, and the individual can either step up and demonstrate that they are, accept what you're saying, or the third option, they can, they can move on. Well, it feels a bit tough that, you know, you're not going to give me that promotion personally, Paul, but, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to have to accept it. I'm going to have to work on myself. <laughs> but, but I think that's interesting because that leads into something else I want to talk about. That, you know, some of the people listening to this, you know, a lot of people run their own businesses and the people who run their own businesses will set those up for a, a multifarious number of e- reasons. Uh, one of them is because they're quite opinionated or they want to do things in a certain way or they feel that they have got the skills to do it. They don't want to have to cheapen their abilities by having to respond to the vagaries of uh, kind of somebody in a management position telling them to do it in a different way and some people because they're actually really good at doing it but that's probably not necessarily the norm none of which necessarily says that the people who've the founders who've set up their own businesses are natural leaders they're just good at their jobs and they want to do something else so how do we think about becoming a good leader if you're not necessarily naturally one some of the things that you can do i think you were talking about telling stories and making people understand the why, the unifying purpose, I think you call it. Yeah, so right. what, what is that? And is that a good starting point? It's a great starting point. If, if you know what it is you want to achieve with your entrepreneurial mindset and you've got an idea and a picture of what the company is going to look like in terms of turnover, who your ideal client is, what it is you can do for them, how you can change their life, then you need to tell that story. You need to tell that story to the team that you're going to employ. And and the idea is probably to grow. So you need to be able to communicate that story in a manner that is aspirational, inspirational and transparent. I'm aware of the unifying purpose. I'll come on to that in a second if if that's okay. So aspirational because you've got to get people out of bed. You know, people want to come and work for you. So that it's got to be an aspirational idea. It can't be easy. It can't be that easy to achieve. Otherwise, people aren't going to come in. You've got to inspire people as well. You know, so it's got to be something that's slightly challenging to achieve. And also, you've got to be transparent about the story, because if, if I've got, you know, five departments of, of 10 people, I've got 50, whatever, three people working for me. If everyone understands their part in the story and their role in the play and knows that they can step up and, and be the hero at some point in that, then they're vicariously going to support the others when they're in the spotlight. So that's the, the value of storytelling is to be able to get people to to visualise the end state, to the journey, and understand that they've got a really important part in it. And that's where the unifying purpose comes in. Sorry, I was going to say that you mentioned that, you know, example of 50 people, but if you're employing 
five or ten people, do you think it's actually easier to try and do that because you've got direct connections and contact with people on a daily basis? It's exactly the same. Yeah, it's exactly the same, actually. It's probably slightly easier with a smaller group in the first instance, but it's exactly the same. You've got to be able to tell that story to get the right people on board who believe in the story. And, and the unifying purpose is, and it comes from a military phrase, so every mission statement in the army has three constituent factors, title, task, and unifying purpose. You know, so it's, Anthony, you are head of the finance department, so that's your title. Your task is to make sure all the finances, you know, up to date, with all the invoices are in, all the, all the payments are made, you know, that's the task. And the unifying purpose is always in the military identified with the prefix in order to. The in order to do would be in order that ABC Limited can successfully launch our product to a global market and be a class leader. And that's the same unifying purpose for every department in the business. And therefore, you know your specific role in the big story. You know when you can be in the spotlight and be the hero of that particular part of the story. But more importantly, you can start to make decisions that are within that intent, within that unifying purpose. If you know the direction of travel, then every decision you make is going to be within that bigger picture. It's going to be within the intent of the CEO, the boss, or, or the overall business. And that way, if you, if you can communicate the why, the purpose, then people exercise initiative. And importantly, it means they don't have to constantly keep coming back to you to bring decisions to you for your approval. If they know the direction of travel, they're going to make decisions which frees up your time to do what you need to do, which might be bring on more stakeholders, communicate up and out, do a couple of technical roles if it's a smaller business and you've got to get hands on. Or if it's a bigger business, then you can do stakeholder engagement externally, speak to the shareholders, do whatever it is you need to do, but influence externally. Yeah, and that leads in quite nicely from your starting point earlier on where you were saying about trying to bring people to the point where they can replace you. So what you're also suggesting with that unifying purpose is if you understand why you're doing something, you can start to take those decisions, you can start to become more accountable for your actions. So, you know, you have the title and task, which gives you a sense of place and the activities you're meant to be doing. But if you have that unifying purpose, you're, you're essentially emboldening other people to be able to work out for themselves to some extent what is the best way to try and deliver in order to get to that end goal which is going to be suitable for the bigger aims of the business. Yeah, exactly. And it also enables you to have some organisational resilience and a bit of redundancy, not, not in the bad sense, but you know, in, in terms of if you've got a head of department A and head of department B who are excellent leaders, they're not there because of their technical prowess, all the technicians sit sit beneath them in their department if executive a has to go off for whatever or or decides to move away from the business executive b can take on that department because you just need good solid leadership capabilities you've already got the technicians to advise you up and if you know the unifying purpose then decisions you make will as long as each step takes you a closer a step closer to that unifying purpose then you know you're traveling in the right direction uh, so it builds in resiliency, which is great for an organisation, especially a small one. And I guess that also kind of feeds into another important aspect, which is about trust. I think that's something which we see being given by leaders in different measures. Some are very trusting of their staff, others perhaps yeah. less so. And I guess that's something that we've been through a lot of recently as people have been forced to work from home. So I was just wondering, as a leader, what is it that makes people not trust their staff? Wow. 
Yeah, that's a good one. I think if people are closed quite often, uh, people don't do what they say they're going to do, operate without integrity. So, you know, if you're not watching them all the time and they're putting their feet up and not doing what's required, then then you're going to need to not trust them. Whereas if someone is doing, you know, their job, despite the fact that you're looking or not, especially at the moment when people are still working from home, then you're less likely to, to trust them if they're... I mean, there's the classics as well, you know, bullying, harassment, conduct that is, that is and behaviours that you're not prepared to tolerate, then that's an immediate untrustworthy individual. But I think there's a really fine line here, and it's something that I feel quite strongly about, is that sort of banter level. Now, the army, military, has got strong levels of banter, but people use that as an excuse. You know, if you're laughing at someone else's expense and you're joking about someone, well, they're less likely to bring their whole self to the table in future. So I think that's an element to just be very cautious of as well in the trust department. You know, if people are constantly poking fun and ridiculing others in in light of banter, then I think that's an element to really, really focus in on and act quite quickly to to avoid the loss of trust. I think there's also the other aspect, which is that people, if if people aren't, on top of the people working for them, they feel they're not going to be doing the work and that they will have a bit of a, a slack attitude. And I think that's another worry. But I just wondered, is there, are there measures that you can, if you're guilty of that, let's say, for whatever the reasons might be, are there measures that you can start to implement which would help improve your trust levels as a leader in the people who you have working for you? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's a case of just being transparent and say, listen, I, I've got I've got a bit of a problem. I, you know, there's a vulnerability here uh, in the true sense of the word, not, not you know, weakness and all that stuff that people like to associate with vulnerability, which I vehemently argue against. But, you know, you could be honest and say, look, do you know what? If, if you're not, if I'm not watching you and you're not reporting in on a daily basis, then I'm going to think you're not doing the work. So how can we overcome that if you're that courageous to, to expose that, that self-awareness to the team and people might come up with some sort of solution? The other way is to perhaps sit back and just see what happens. But most people who think that way is because that's how they would operate. You know, it's, it's very telling when a leader micromanages that actually it might be because they need micromanaging or possibly they've been micromanaged in the past and therefore they're they're just operating in that same shadow. But if someone doesn't trust their team to do the work when they're not looking, well, that speaks volumes about the leader themselves. So in an organisation, if I was leading an organisation in which my leaders were viewing their team in that way, I'd be pulling the leader in and having a chat and finding out why they're thinking that. Do you think, I I mean, the other thing is just if you've got the right, checks and balances in place you can kind of just measure stuff anyway is that and kind of in terms of the managerial aspect of what you have that if you get that process in place and done correctly then that could take away quite a lot of those anxieties if- yeah definitely you know it, it comes back to to delegation theory doesn't it ultimately if you assess the task in the correct way and, and chunk it up into decent bite-sized chunks and then give it to the right person who you have already assessed and have the opportunity to both do it and not fail and grow into that opportunity, then your delegation is right and you've given it to the right person. But another aspect of delegation that a lot of people miss up front is when you give the task, you have to set the preconditions of the reporting structure. So, you know, Anthony, here's a job I want you to do and I want you to come back to me every other Friday and, and tell me how you're getting on. And we'll put something in the diary. 
if I come to you within that time, there's a risk I'm micromanaging you and there's a risk that you think I'm micromanaging you. So if we set the preconditions of how we're going to report back on that task each time and we stick to them, then I'm demonstrating my trust in you because I've set the conditions up front. So I'm not micromanaging. I'm telling you, actually, this is a really important task. So I need to know at five o'clock every day where you are. And the reason I need to know that is for the following reason. And as long as you understand the reason why, you're more likely to, to buy into that really tight reporting timeframe. Which comes back to that transparency we were talking about earlier on. Have you got examples where you've seen that, that sort of leadership being done really well? I have. I've seen one recently, actually, and it's on one of your podcasts that I've sat on, oh, right. or webinars, I should say. Yeah. So, you know, listeners might not be aware that you run sort of meetings for directors of different sized businesses in a number of different areas. And, and I've been invited in to speak on one of those about, about leadership and, and, and talk to the, the assembled experts in their field. Alex Graves is the managing director of Silicon Reef, a Microsoft specialist company. Uh, and his view of leadership was give trust up front. You know, you come along, I trust you until you demonstrate that you can't. And someone else, I can't remember who it was, said, you know, trust is like virginity. You only give it once or you only lose it once. It, and it's a truism, you know, but, but Alex spoke about how he runs his business in such a way that people are trusted to get the job done. Milestones are, are put in place and people meet those milestones. How, where, when they do that is their business. If you, if you work better in the hours of darkness when the bats are flitting in the back garden, well, then crack on, get it done. You know, as long as you can meet the requirements, i.e., if you've got stakeholder meetings, you've got, you, you can fulfill those at a reasonable time frame for the stakeholder then he didn't seem to mind how, how and when the job got done, as long as it was done. And yeah, he's a very successful businessman. The company's doing well. Yeah. And therefore, if you can demonstrate trust up front, it will nearly always come back. It's when you start to micromanage that trust tends to fall away. People stop offering discretionary effort and only do that which is required. Yeah, I think the part of the unspoken element of that has got to be having a really clear understanding of what it is that has to be done. And coming back to my earlier question about why people don't trust their staff, it's partly because they're not quite sure what's expected of them. And that if you haven't got a very clear time frame, outcome, goal, whatever those things might be, that if you haven't quantified that in some shape or form, it's hard to know if somebody is doing well against the measures because you haven't really mastered the measures and I think what Alex has done is, is got a very clear and strong uh, idea about what they do. And so when, when somebody goes off and they want to work through the night or they want to go and, I don't know, sit on a, a mountain and ski in the morning and work in the afternoon or whatever, then, then that's doable because they know what's expected from them. And it's when you don't know what's expected from you, then those trust issues come into play. Yeah, and that comes back to storytelling again, doesn't it? It's funny how we've gone full circle. If you can tell your story and communicate in a really clear, easy to understand, aspirational, inspirational and transparent way, people know exactly what's required of them. And if they don't understand, they know they can come back and ask questions. So something else that you've talked about is about demanding high performance as a, another leadership goal. And is that just... If you create this sort of infrastructure, then the high performance will come? Or is there something, I suppose, you know, some people demand makes it sound like putting pressure on people. 
But how do you create high demand without necessarily being a closet sociopath? <laughs> well, first things first is demonstrate it yourself. You know, be the best that you can possibly be and constantly strive for excellence. And when you achieve that, move the goalpost and, and try and strive for the next level. You, you know, it comes to that, again, slightly cliched term of not expecting people to do as a leader things that you're not prepared to do yourself. But again, it's open communications and where expectations can be clearly articulated, agreed and managed up front. And I think there's a really nice tool to do that. So lots of people are familiar with the slightly tired, smart objectives. And if they're not, then feel free to Google them. But Something that's coming in more and more now are fast objectives, which are frequently discussed, ambitious, specific and transparent. And the key difference there is frequently discussed and transparent. And I think if you've got those, those goals in place that are demanding, challenging to achieve, but you frequently discuss them, they're transparent and people can offer support in where they've got spare capacity, then you're well on the way to achieving high performance combined with trust, vulnerability, etc. But I think what I would say is high performance and objectives need to be demanding rather than demanded. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, like it. That's very nice. We've started, well, I've started, from that sort of shouty territory of celebrity SAS, who dares wins. And you've, <laughs> kind of, you've covered that really well. But I'd like to turn left a bit, travel into the realms of silent witness or bones or you know, one of those sort of programs. Now, one of the people who you've, you've mentioned to me in the past is uh, Edmund Locard, the French scientist and the father of forensic science. And he yeah. said, every contact leaves a trace. Now, in the hands of silent witnesses, Dr. Nikki Alexander, this inevitably leads to the collaring of some grisly murderer. But how does this every contact leaves a trace apply to leadership? Yeah, so this, this is the underpinning theory of forensic science, which has been condensed down to that every contact leaves a trace. And every time the criminal enters the crime scene, they leave a trace on the crime scene, and the scene leaves a trace on them. Whether human forensic scientists can find it in Silent Witness or any other programme is irrelevant. It is there. So if you lift that theory up and drop it into the uh, leadership domain, every contact leaves a trace. But leaders, unlike criminals, have the choice of what trace they leave behind. So you can leave a negative trace, and we've all had negative traces left on us, be it growing up as a, as a child and our parents have done something that's, that we've not liked, probably told us off or something, or a sports coach, a teacher, or a boss. You know, we get that internal visceral reaction when a, when a negative trace is left. I call them red traces in my forensic leadership theory. Um, and when a red trace is left, we have an an active reaction to it. Heart rate goes up, you know, respiration rate goes up, and it's like a pain. We get a visceral reaction in our gut, or um, the inner monologue fires immediately around, I didn't like that. You know, it might be, again, couched in slightly other colourful adjectives, but ultimately, we don't like the way we're being treated, and we all have those experiences. And, you know, if I was to ask you now, I won't, but if I was to ask you now, you could come up with a very specific example i'm sure of when a red trace has been left on you a negative leadership trace i can come up with a book if you need it paul there you go well <laughs> there you go but that's because we remember them differently we remember bad experiences differently to good experiences and yet we can also leave good traces behind green traces on people so are you saying that it's 
important for you to understand where your negative trait is, you know, kind of how that impacts on you and therefore how you then would, I suppose, just pass that on to the people who you're trying to be in charge of? Or is it as important or just another part of it that you need to understand the sort of red traces which the people who you are leading would have and therefore try to avoid triggering those in the way in which you deal with them? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a great question. There's there's a number of elements that we can understand from uh, looking at red traces. One is we can understand how we react to red traces and therefore try not to leave those traces behind. The other thing is if we can understand how we might come across to others through emotion intelligence or here's a crazy thing, asking them, then we can start to amend the way we think. And also we can do that hypothetically, you know, which is in the coaching world, there's a lot of, you know, walk in another person's shoes. I like to call this listen through another person's ears, which is in the leadership world, there's a lot of people who will stand up at the front and say, pin your ears back, I'm about to motivate you. (laughs) And of course that doesn't work. That just simply doesn't work. So what do you need to say in order for that audience to be able to motivate themselves? And the flip side of red traces, of course, as well, is if you have a red trace left upon you, you have a responsibility to own your reaction to that, which might well be, come back to, you know, if I leave a red trace on you as a work colleague, you should be, through radical candor, have the ability to come back to me and say, Paul, you know, when you do that thing, it makes me feel the following way and I don't like it. So, you know, I wonder if there's a way we could perhaps not to do that in the future. That's really good. That's really smart, actually, as well. And I love that kind of whole idea about trying to introduce emotional intelligence into the workplace. But something like that is quite a brave step for somebody to make. But have you seen ways in which that's been done where I suppose people feel like they have the permission to be able to do that? Because I think a lot of people have trepidation about turning around to their boss and criticising them. And they feel that, you know, I might not get a pay rise, I may not get the promotion, you know, I might get sacked, whatever those things are. Have you seen it being done well, where people really kind of believe that there's no such thing as a mistake, there's just something to learn from, and if that works all around? How's that been applied in a sensible way? It's rare. I have to say it's rare, but I have seen it. Uh, And the way to implement that, if if it's something you aspire towards being that type of person, then the best way is to encourage constructive criticism of yourself, to demonstrate again in that don't expect people to do something you're not prepared to do yourself as a leader, the best way is to say, you know, you've, you've heard of the 360-degree appraisals. Well, this is a kind of 180-degree one, if you like. Nearly all of those templates have three core questions in them. And at the end is, what should I carry on doing? What should I stop doing? And what should I do less of or what should I amend? Well, the, what, am I good at, what should I carry on doing is ultimately I'm asking you to give me a pat on the back and tell me what I'm doing well, which is nice to have. But the other two elements are where I can grow. Uh, And if I'm being truly open and accepting my vulnerabilities, uh, then I'm going to say to you, right, what should I stop doing or what should I amend the way I'm doing it? And then I come back to you. There's a guy, Marshall Goldsmith, talks a lot. He's a very, very accomplished coach. I think he's one of the most sought after coaches in the world. He suggests that feedback should actually be two ways so you you tell me what I'm not very good at and then I come back to you and say Anthony that's really valuable feedback thank you now what I plan on doing with that is the following you know when I'm speaking publicly I will 
say less jokes because you've told me that that undermines the message. So I'll say less jokes. And what I'd really like is, is in future, if I could bounce one of my speeches off you before I get up on stage and you could tell me where I'm doing that. That's a slightly tongue-in-cheek example, but it demonstrates that I've taken the feedback seriously. And because it's come from you, if I know it's come from you, then I can come back and say, do you know what, when you said this, what, what did you mean? And how, how do I best address it? Because I think this way. So how can you help me address my issues? But then we've opened up the door to it. It's not a secretive feedback. You know, you want it to be anonymous, really, to get true feedback, don't you? So in which case, you can go to the team and say, you've all given me this feedback. There's three key themes that are appearing out of it. I'm not asking anyone to hand raise and say it was you. But I'm grateful for those three themes. And this is what I'm going to do to address those three themes. And I'd like you to help me out. So it's better to try and give that 180 degree feedback to the whole of your team rather than any one individual, because then you have got that level of anonymity in there. But also, I suppose... I, I, to a certain extent, yeah. Okay. And also, I suppose you, you know, there's also perhaps a fear that if you directly invite too much criticism, it might lead to insubordination and people feeling like, you know, it's completely... Well, I know. What do you think? Do completely flat structures work or do they actually... Uh, prompt people into feeling like they can kind of get away and do what they want well, i mean there's an interesting question if, they, if it's a truly flat structure and you break the rules who tells you off if, if no one tells you off then it's probably flat or if you know someone your boss is the one who's going to pull you in uh, and tell you off if we need to get there but i think yeah what's really important is to get that feedback up front so yes flat structures can absolutely work are they ever truly flat we could probably have another whole discussion around that but it, all, it comes back again to that transparency and that communication and the willingness to grow and develop the team. Um, and if you want to be truly trusting of one another, then you've got to open up to hear things that you may not be that comfortable to hear, but are prepared to own and then change. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it comes back into communication as well. Mm. I was just wondering how often do you think you should be talking with your team and, you know, are there things things specifically that every good leader tends to say to their team or allows their team to say to them? Well, I think, you know, there's no real formula on how often you should talk to your team. Whenever you can is, you know, the feedback I would give to that, and which is probably not, not scientific enough, but whenever you have the opportunity to speak to your people, you should, because then you'll know them better, especially in situations like we're facing at the moment during lockdown, furlough, you know, situations like that, just to maintain that human contact are there things you should be saying how are you thank you please you know those green traces are incredibly powerful to be noticed by the boss and and to have someone say thank you for doing something specific that you do is immense it will outweigh in almost all situations any financial recompense you could be given almost all situations that's interesting because I was looking at something uh, recently and it was, a, it was a leadership blog, a quote from it. It says, effective leaders link together two different expectations. The expectation that hard work leads to good results. The expectation that good results lead to attractive rewards or incentives. And I was just wondering, really, is that true in your experience? Are people really motivated by rewards or is it just in way in how you interpret what those rewards are i think there's a good portion of interpretation in that 
There are some people who are motivated by reward and significance. You know, my own history in the military, if you did a good job, you were going to get promoted. And that was a great thing. But, you know, you didn't necessarily do it for that. There were some that navigated a path in order to do the right job to get promoted, sure. I think if you are paid a fair salary, discuss. But if you're paid a fair salary, then, you know, an extra financial bonus, that's that's nice, of course it is. But I think more routinely, for someone to say thank you and notice your work gives you the more, it doesn't necessarily give you a higher peak, but it, it touches you personally at a more visceral level than getting, you know, at the end of the year, an extra X number of pounds. But reward can be done in so many different ways. You know, you could have, you know, if you're doing well at work and, and other people nominate you as a good worker, then you get a number of stars. And once you've got a number of stars, you then get a voucher at Amazon or something like that. So it's not necessarily that individual, I've noticed you, there's favouritism. You could get it across the whole, like the old suggestion boxes that you used to have around. You could get people just dropping a slot of paper in. So-and-so's done really well. I really appreciate the work they've done for me this month. There's lots of different ways of harnessing and defining reward, I think, that aren't necessarily that immediate go-to financial bit. Dan Pink does a lot of good work on reward and motivation theory, where routinely people who were offered financial recompense for doing a job quicker uh, actually did the job slower than a group who weren't offered that financial recompense. Because they were trying to do it better? or Because they were trying to do it harder, faster, you know, and, and it became a, a slightly toxic reward. So Dan Pink does a lot of good work in that area. But the other stuff that you've been talking about as well sounds equally rewarding by empowering people, by giving people the chance that they, you know, giving them the, the scope and the flexibility to be able to try things out for themselves and being able to input their own input in stuff. Because actually what most people believe in is themselves. You know, people are interested predominantly yeah. in themselves before anybody else. So if they have a chance to try and prove themselves to you, that's highly rewarding as well. Wait, isn't that the role of a leader? Surely that's the role of a leader to be able to, you know, if, if any of my team come to me and they've got a problem, the worst thing in the world I can do is step down into that problem space and solve it for them. Because then they just come to me again with problems, come to me, come to me. Whereas if I can step slightly into that space in order to understand the problem space and then support them in stepping up into that and solving it themselves well then they've grown as an individual they're one step closer to taking over my job and obviously leadership isn't just about taking over your, your boss's job but it's about progress and growth and development and surely that's the thing to do isn't it but equally doing that up as a leader in the military and anywhere else I would look to my boss and if they're struggling and if you know or I'd say do you know what I've, I've got some spare capacity if there's anything you want me to do and that's that upward leadership and also owning the red traces and also owning the green traces. There's a school of thought at the moment where you can write a report as a leader of how to work with me. You know, I respond really well to this. I don't respond well to that. And, you know, I'm skilled at this, but I'm not very skilled at that. And you give it out to the team as well as your own boss. And therefore they know how to work with you. But I think that reflects society more widely, doesn't it? That as a society, we're much, we're much more open, I think, than our 
parents and our grandparents and there's been just you know in a way that our parents never understood who they never knew who freud was they'd heard the name but they had no idea of the concept and we don't really have that excuse anymore because we know about freud and we know about jung and we know about you know all of these other people who are around and and you know, we know about child psychology and things like that so we understand the mechanisms of how the brain works that much more and so therefore trying to provide ways that support that it, it's kind of it's less excusable for us not to be doing that uh, and it's interesting that that it seems to be that that's being reflected in what you're saying of how you should try approaching just just by being a 21st century person you just ought to be more interested in your team and more flexible around that i think so just being you know being a nice person an approachable person who understands how they impact on other people and how other people's emotions affect other people and, and just taking that step back as a leader and surveying the team and having the ability to look and, and notice things. You know, in the military, there's a thing it came from when you're tracking. It became clear in Afghanistan as well about ground sign, which is, you know, if, if there's been a disturbance to the ground, you can tell something's happened. And that's called the absence of the normal and the presence of the abnormal. That can perpetuate in almost all walks of life if something feels wrong and looks wrong it almost certainly is so just stop and take stock and you'll see that in the team someone you know if I turn up to work and I'm neatly you know dressed every day my tie's always done up well I'm clean shaven and after a couple of days I'm looking a bit scruffy I'm not clean shaven my tie I've got a bit of egg down my tie or whatever then you might think that's abnormal What's wrong? But you wouldn't notice that if you weren't able to step back and look at the team every now and again. So it is that absence of the normal, presence of the abnormal, and then go with the gut as to when is the right time to step in and ask. Yeah, Paul, let's go and have a coffee. I've noticed that you're not shaving. You know, is everything okay? Because I've noticed stuff and I personally am worried. And therefore, you are leading from a position of care, which I come back to every single time. Well, Paul, that's probably a perfect place to stop. Uh, I was going to ask you for a kind of a, a last kind of thought, but that's it. That's brilliant. Uh, and a really interesting, you know, I think having that awareness is so important. So look, you said that's um, a good place. So thank you very much. Uh, it's been really good to talk to you. Thank you. And yeah, look forward to seeing you around. Yeah. Cheers, Anthony. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode. There's more information about all of our guests and all the topics they talk about at tenthdegree.co.uk. And also, please do review us. We really want to share the lessons and the advice that's given as widely as possible, and this really helps us to get that message out there. Thanks.